Well, as you heard, let's turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 4 this morning. We do come to the fourth chapter of this book, or the book of Joshua. You'll notice, though, at the end of chapter 3, beginning there in verse 14, we read of the crossing of the people into the land of promise. So let me read that again, because really this will set the stage for this chapter, which is uh, kind of an expansion of what takes place in verses 14 through 17. So let's read that, and then we'll get into chapter 4. And it came to pass, when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people... And as they bare the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bare the ark were dipped into the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks on all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam, that is, Eridan, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. So we see then this marvelous and uh, miraculous work of the Lord parting uh, the river, just as he had parted the Red Sea, and at least in a fashion, back in the book of Exodus. When we come now to chapter 4, we see kind of, as I think, an overall description of some of the events that had actually transpired uh, from verses 14 through verse 17 in the previous uh, in chapter 3. And this isn't necessarily unusual in the Word of God, especially when it's dealing with historical narrative. Or sometimes it seems like, oh, that's a break in the chronology or it just doesn't seem to fit right. If we kind of look back, maybe it's a summation of what's being taken place. And we do see a, quite a bit of that in the Word of God. Now, when we come to chapter 4, and if you read any commentaries on it, you know a lot of commentators have quite a time with this chapter trying to give some of the supposed typology that is found here. I'm not saying there isn't any typology here, but I have to wonder at some of the stuff that I have read in the past few weeks in regarding chapter 4 is uh, all there that's really there. Well, you know, the crossing over, some have said that had to do with uh, representing death. You hear people even talk about that even today, crossing over the river. Bunyan used that kind of analogy or, or typology in Pilgrim's Progress. I don't have a problem with that. Some said, no, it's representing the resurrection of Jesus Christ, him crossing over and going over. Some even said, well, it's both. It's speaking of both uh, our death or the death of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, some say no, it has to do with going over into the new covenant. Some say it has to do with baptism and being in, so out of a church membership and so forth. The priests representing this, the stones representing even the twelve apostles, as I read one particular individual. And so you go on and go on and go on until you think, well, well, what is all of this? Well, uh, I don't know. I kind of wonder about some of that stuff myself when it comes to the uh, this doctrine of types and that sort of thing. What one author did say, I was kind of amazed. He went so far as to say what he's about to relate, only one other person he found in the commentaries that gave the view of things that he's about ready to give. Well, that ought to tell you something right there. If no other commentator mentions it, then you might have some new things that you might be dreaming of. That was Pink, by the way, who was so bold to say that. Uh, Author Pink, in his book on the book of Joshua. Well, I won't be as brave and I won't be as imaginative or as dogmatic in these things. I only want to hopefully give some 
something of the narrative, the historical value of it, and then to give some practical uh, considerations over this when we finish. Actually, the uh, chapter 4 is really pretty straightforward as far as it, what it does lay out. You kind of have to be careful, though, again, with the chronology of the thing. That is the timing of it. Try to put it in its right place. But then that, be that as it may, it's still pretty straightforward as we look at this. Well, as we begin, let's look at the first five verses, and we see the Lord's direction to Joshua. And it came to pass, when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priests' feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take ye up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of Israel, children of Israel. Uh, and he tells us why here in just a moment. But up to that point, we do see then the Lord here gives a command or a description or a direction to Joshua. In verse 1, we see that the people here, and he uses the phrase, they passed clean over, or clean passed over, just simply means, as we would say today, they went over without a hitch. It didn't cause any problems, any uh, thing uh, happened that would have tripped them up, so to speak. The Lord parted the water. He dried it at the same time, and the people were able to go over. And that's what he means there when it says both in the previous chapter and this chapter and as well here in verse 1, that they were clean passed over Jordan. And it's at this time then, or around this time, that the Lord then speaks to Joshua. And uh, here in the midst of this, as I said, a marvelous and a miraculous parting of the river uh, and the people to be able to go over dry ground, then Moses or uh, Joshua here is instructed to choose 12 men, according to verse 2, uh, one man out of each tribe. And the problem of what they're to do is to carry then a stone. They're to pick a stone out of the river, as we see from verse 3, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, that is the Jordan River, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones. So they were to pick up twelve big rocks, and these fellows have to carry them until the place that they're going to go and camp. And so they're to carry them out. Now there's a purpose of that, and we see this in verse 6. Through nine, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the ark of the covenant stood, and they are there unto this day." Now then, this might seem a little confusing, but if you look at it as two different rock pilings, and then you shouldn't have any problems. 
That is, they took the rocks out of the river, and they're going to set them up in Gilgal. And they also took some rocks in the midst of the river and allowed them to be stacked up. At least that's how I can understand what took place here at this point. But the purpose of all this, this is more important. Whether we can figure out whether it's two sets of rocks or one set, that's not the real issue. The real issue is that these rocks were to be then a memorial or a sign to the people. If it is two sets of rocks, then there was to be this set of rocks within the river that when the river was down, the people would be able to see it or... Uh, at other times, wherever the river was flowing at that time. Then there would be another set of rocks just a little while far away sitting in what's going to be known as Gilgal at that time. And thus that will be a remembrance of what? Well, according to what this text says, it's a remembrance of what had taken place by God working this miraculous power upon the river. As we know, God certainly is in charge of the elements. I mean, if he created them, then also he can direct them. I don't have a problem under, believing that God is able to do what he wills with his creation. To think that he can bring all of this into pass out of nothing, that is, he speaks this into existence, it doesn't affect my faith whatsoever to have a hard time trying to figure out, well, how does he do it now that he's put everything in order? Well, the hard part isn't setting it up now as it's already is, but the fact that he put all of this into existence without uh, anything beforehand, that would be the real trouble. And brethren, if we can believe that, why would we have a hard time thinking throughout Scripture that God cannot intervene in miracles and such things as he begins to work within his creation? So there are a lot of folks who stumble over that. But again, if we can remember the first part, we shouldn't have too much problems with the second part, that he is able to direct his creation as well as he can create his creation. Well, this is what's there to remember. This is to be a sign to the children of Israel, and I suppose anyone else who would take notice of this, but in particular, it was to be a sign to the upcoming generations, including the immediate generation of the children of Israel, that they would remember that God had mercy upon them, that he had fulfilled his promises, and in doing this, he allowed the people to cross over at this junction of history when, you remember, this is harvest time, and there's plenty of reasons for all that, too, Again, the harvest time where the flooding would be taking place, and yet God causes this to stop. The water stops flowing. He dries it up. So hundreds of thousands of individuals can cross over uh, without a hitch. And so this was the, the miracle and the power of God being demonstrated in this. And this is the sign, then, of these stones. And then notice verses 10 through 13. We see that they pass over. For the priests which bear the ark stood in the midst of Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to speak unto the people, according to all that Moses commanded Joshua. And the people hasted and passed over. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over that the ark of the Lord passed over and the priests in the presence of the people. And the ark of Reuben, or excuse, and the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses spake unto them. About 40,000 prepared, that is out of these two and a half tribes, about 40,000 prepared for war passed over before the Lord unto battle to the plains of Jericho. Now again, keeping all this straight, this is just another recap 
of the summation of what's already taken place here, the people passing over. He just gives us a little more detail. In fact, we would have not known about the 40,000 prepared for war if it wasn't for this particular junction. It was not known beforehand. Now, we know that the two and a half tribes of Israel were going to send uh, their men over to help the remaining tribes as they go in, and the children and the wives were to stay on the other side of the Jordan. But here we actually see how many of the men who were prepared for war going over. So this is just an amplification, a recap of what's been taking place at this point. But notice the two armies as fulfilling the covenant they had made with Joshua and with Moses. This is taking place. They cross over, as he says in verse 11, clean passed over. Verse 12 tells us of the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad and Manasseh. So two and a half tribes of men, not the women and children, but the men pass over in order to carry out the, what they had told they were going to do earlier. And then from verses 14 through 18, we see now that the Lord magnifies Joshua in all of this. On that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Command the priests that bear the ark of the testimony, that they come up out of Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come ye up out of Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord were come up out of the midst of Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up unto the dry land, that the waters of Jordan, that is the river, returned unto their place, and flowed over all his banks as they did before. Now, as you remember back in chapter 3, verses 5, and also verse 7, that God promised to uh, Joshua that he would magnify him or set him in such a way that what he's about ready to do, that it's going to make him look good in the eyes of all the people so that they will obey him. Remember, he's taking now the job of Moses, and they had a lot of respect for Moses. And now here comes Joshua taking his place, and there's probably always that friction when there always are new leaders coming in. Well, God here is going is determined to see that the people of Israel pay attention to their new leader who is going to be Joshua. And one of the ways in which he does this is by this miracle that had taken place, the parting of the uh, river Jordan. We see, for instance, in chapter 3, verse 5, it says, And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Part of the wonders was not only to encourage the people and also to get them over, but also to cause them to be obedient to their new leader. So there were several things going on here in God causing the people of Israel uh, to go over the river Jordan. Then verse 7, he says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And there's an interesting passage back in the law. You don't need to turn there. I will. And dealing with this very thing about how they respected Moses. In Exodus 14, verse 31. If I can get there. There it is. It says, And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Uh, if you know anything about the New Testament, you remember the thing about the Jews that had to have a sign. And, well, the Jews require a sign, the Scripture says, and this is what they needed. And it's amazing. This is an application of this. You know, God deals with us where we are, doesn't he? 
Here was the nation of Israel who were just a people, bigot as this may sound, but this is what the Scripture says, they were a people given over to signs. And so one of the ways in which God helped them to see the truth and the reality of what he was going to do, what he said, and even who he was choosing to be the leaders, he gave them the sign that they were that was needful. Here again, it goes to show us that God knows our frame, and he knows exactly what it takes to move us to do whatever we need to be doing in the sight of the Lord. Well, what was this great sign? Well, it was a sign that the Lord parted the waters. And notice, he refers back to the Red Sea in this. And the fact that this would have certainly brought into their memory what had happened uh, to their fathers uh, in the faith, as well as what was going on, their, their legitimate parents, of what had taken place the generation before. Remember, this is the new generation that's going into the land of Canaan. And then verses 19 through 24 we see that they do encamp near what's going to be, which is called Gilgal now. And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal and the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. So now we see where the stones are set. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your fa- children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan before you, as ye were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that ye might fear the Lord your God forever." We see here that they do encamp near uh, the city of Jericho. And they're out there in the plains, you remember. And uh, this is, place is going to be called Gilgal. Uh, that will be east of the city. I don't think there's any... Uh, the last commentator I read, anyway. There's no uh, remains of that particular city that they're aware of. So this place, Gilgal, they don't know about. But they do know then it was uh, around Jericho because this is where hundreds of thousands of individuals were being encamped. Actually, the word Gilgal means, look in chapter 5, verse 9. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. So we see the reason then why the name Gilgal is there. It's to... Uh, the word, if you look in your center reference, has to do with the idea of rolling, the word Gilgal. This is the time then that God rolled or took away from uh, the reproach that Israel had had for the last 40 years. Uh, and not only that, but from the time that they were in Egypt under the bondage of, uh, of the Egyptians. Again, we see the reason why the stones were being carried out. Notice he says this several times in this chapter. So there's something to that we ought to pay attention to. But we see in verse 20 why it's set up. Uh, Verse, excuse me, 24, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. So it wasn't just set up for Israel itself, but also for others might know something of the mighty power of God. So there's a reminder here in all of this. And of course, it's to instill trust for his people, that is, it's to instill trust and fear uh, of the people in generations to come. Now, let me give some lessons, and this is where we'll stop on this particular chapter. First of all, you notice, as I said, I think there are two sets of stones, one in the river and then the one that's going to be set up in Gilgal. If that's not correct, 
great. I don't care. That's, I mean, as far as that goes, it doesn't really matter. The point is, these stones, whether there's 12 or 24, they are a, there's a purpose for them, and that is a memorial. And let me give you some of the reasons as to why. First of all, as we've said, we, just as an application, is that we need to be reminded very often. And so God does gives us, does give us memorial. Remember, for instance, now this is not a, I don't think a type of the Lord's table. I'm just using this to show that there are real memorials still to the people of God. Even though we have the Word of God, and even though we have the Spirit of God in our hearts, He still has given us a memorial even in the New Covenant. And that, of course, is what? The Lord's table. And that is to make us remember what Christ has done for us. You think, how could I ever forget that? Well, once again, God knows our frame and He knows what we need in order to encourage us and to move us on in our faith. And if He thought we needed the Lord's table to help us remember, then there must be a reason for it. And so let's take heed of that kind of thing. And not to be proud and boisterous, but to honestly and, and wholeheartedly remember these things which are set up. So we do need those kind of reminders. Even though we're Christians and you would think, how could I ever forget that? Well, we are prone to do so. So the, the ordinances then are set up for that very thing. Just as the twelve stones were to be a constant reminder to Israel, to all who walked by that place. Another thing we can learn from this is you notice here that they were to let their children know this. So obviously we see our duty then to teach uh, future generations about the things of God. We ought to be preparing a foundation now to teach other generations. And that doesn't happen after we're gone, brethren. This is one of the reasons why we do take the time, uh, just one of many, why we take the time to train. We trust elders who will take over the work someday or do continue on in the work. Well, this is part of it. We know that if we don't do this, these things won't continue. So again, your help and your prayers are certainly appreciated in this. But what are you doing to continue uh, the the knowledge of the Lord in a future generation? You say, well, I've got the Bible. And I'll just pass it. Well, so did the Israel. They had the audible Word of God. Later on, they're going to have the written Word of God. And yet, God still left that sign to Israel. Remember it said in, uh, in the text that it is there unto this day. So they had both the Word, the written Word, and they had this visible sign to them. Are we smarter than God? Of course not. So there's much more than we can be doing. This is not taking away from sola scriptura. This is just what God commands or we see the thing. So there ought to be this laying down for a future generation. But also in regards just particularly to our children, brethren, are we not commanded from the Word of God to train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it? Parents, are we taking the time to lay that foundation in our children, to teach them and to instruct them? The Scripture tells us in the New Testament, train up your children in the ways of the Lord. It reminds us that we're to train them up and to nurture them in the things of God. Well, are we doing that? Are we taking the time? Are we taking the tools that God has given us uh, to do so? And uh, whether it be by word, which ought to be both, word of mouth and also example. You know, we can say all we want, but if we don't do, that certainly plants a, a bad connotation in their thinking. So, not only should we be taking the time to instruct them, but brethren, we ought to be taking the time to live these things 
in front of them. And then the third thing we can see from this, this idea of this memorial is they had to have answers. Well, it says there, when your children come to you and they say, what means these stones? They didn't go, I don't know. That's kind of how we would say today. I don't know. But we'd shrug our shoulders. I don't know. No, they had to have answers, didn't they? Now, again, we're not saying everybody has to have all the answers, all your parents. How many times you've been asked questions you've literally had to say, I don't know. Well, that's legit if you really don't know. But again, though, are we taking the time to lay that foundation for our children by taking the time to be studied in the things of the Lord ourselves? That's how you become a stepping stone, for instance, to the next generation, is to have some answers now. When they do ask, and we hope they do ask, what means this? Why do you go to church, Mommy and Daddy? Why do you have family devotions? Why do you read your Bibles that we ought to be able to have an answer set for them? Are we taking the time to do that? And then the second thing, all through this chapter, we see something of the obedience both of Joshua, actually all three, Joshua, the priests, and the people. So here's a lesson, brethren, is that we ought to be obedient when God commands us. Remember, as we taught last Lord's Day, don't just be a hearer only. But be a doer of the word. Joshua commands the folks several times to obey. Chapter 4 again in verse 3, he says, And command ye them. Verse 8, he says, And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded. Verse 10, For the priests which bear the ark stood in the midst of Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua. Verse 16, Command the priests. Verse 17, Joshua, therefore, commanded the priest. Notice how many times that word is found there. Here again, if it's repeated often, we ought to take note of it. And at this point, they were obedient. So, brethren, we ought to be obedient. Happy and blessed are the people of God who are obedient to the commands of God. Even through lawful, once again, as we said, lawful authority, pastors, elders, uh, over uh, those who oversee us, the fact of uh, outside of the church, we have rulers uh, in the land, we have parents, those sorts of things, they're to be obeyed. And that is part of the Word of God. Another thing, thirdly, we can say is that God is ready to do great things for His people. And again, He did so, obviously, to glorify Himself. We would never not think that, I hope, that whatever God does, it's first and foremost to the glorying of His own name. But we also said that He did it for the people's good here. He did it so that they would be encouraged to fear God. They did it so they would be encouraged to fear Joshua. He did it so that even the nations about them would fear. Well, brethren, in the New Covenant, I would say it's even better. Because He has given us His own Son to testify something of the willingness and the readiness for God to do great things unto His people. The Bible tells us, for instance, in Romans 8, verse 32, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? So again, God is not going to let His people down. And then the last thing we note here is the unity in the mind of God of God's people. You notice here, in chapter 4, when he begins to give 
the instruction to the people of why that the fathers are to tell the children these things, he says it in such a way that they are a part of this history. In other words, you know, they really weren't there. This, this, the generation that's, come, that's going to come before and ask why these rocks are here. They were not present when God dried up the Red Sea, literally. But if you notice the wording of verse 23, they are. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until we were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over. And also the passages before this, it also deals with that very same thing. The idea that there is a unity with God's people. Brethren, we were obviously, this is nothing, anything new. We stood in Adam, both as a natural, he was our natural head, he was also our federal head. We stand in Christ as our federal representative. Uh, we, uh, the children of Israel, the Levites, for instance, gave tithes through Abraham. They were in his loins. So there is that representative idea given there. And brethren, it's a glorious thing because the scripture says one of the things about Christ's death and what he did in his ministry and what God will do for his people is that, that he will make them one so that we will know and honor God. And we see something of this in this chapter here, the unity of God's people. And as it has happened of the people of God of old, it's true to us it's because we become a part of this redemptive history. And it's not so far away. Well, you know, that happened in Bible times. And yeah, it must have been great and all that. It ought to encourage us that as it happened to them in a spiritual sense, it's true to us as we are God's people.